Go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus with me. Chapter 7, friends, is where we're going to be this morning as we continue this sermon series that we started back in the fall, walking through the book of Exodus uh, little by little. Again, it's the second book in the whole Bible, so it should be fairly easy to find right at the front there. And if you need a Bible, there are some hard copies on the seats in front of you. Uh, page 42 is where we'll be. And again, we, we do sermon series like this where we just walk through books of the Bible because we really believe that God speaks to us through His Word. He's made Himself known to us through His Word. And so we want to spend time together as a church just walking through books of the Bible and hearing what God has to say. You saw in that short video a little bit of a summary of where we've been. The people of God are living in slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh is this brutal and harsh ruler over them, but God promises to deliver them, to rescue them from slavery in Egypt and lead them out into freedom that they might worship him. But so far, through the first six chapters, things haven't quite worked out. The people are still in slavery. Moses and the people are wondering if they will be able to go free and worship God. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 7. Now, if you look at verse 14 of chapter 7, you, you see maybe the heading or the title above that section of Scripture. It's about the plagues. And that's where we find ourselves in the story. Probably the most well-known part of the narrative, uh, right up there with kind of leaving and crossing the Red Sea, we have the plagues, these ten uh, wonders, miraculous acts of judgment that God brings upon the land of Egypt because Pharaoh won't humble himself before the Lord. And this is probably exactly how you wanted to start 2020, right? Resolutions more health, go to church, I want to be encouraged, I want to be about better things, and you come to church and it's plagues. <laughs> but this is what the Lord has for us here. This is where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, and I think we'll be surprised, actually, we'll be surprised this morning at how much we can look like the ancient Egyptians. We'll get into that as we go, but let's pray together one more time before we start. Father, we thank you for your word we thank you that you have made yourself known to us and to the world through Scripture. God, you've spoken. You've, you've communicated who you are. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us as a church uh, understand your word. Help us understand what we read this morning. Help us apply it to our lives. Would you change us, shape us, convict us, challenge us, comfort us? Do your work, Lord, in us. Uh, we invite you here now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's get right into the text, shall we? Chapter 7, verse 14 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. And so this first plague here kicks off the next several chapters where we really see this back and forth between God and 
Pharaoh, where God will send ten plagues, these wonders, these acts of judgment upon the land of Egypt, because again, Pharaoh will not humble himself and let the people go. And rather than spending ten weeks on the ten plagues, which some of you might want, ten weeks, ten plagues, more, you're like people that shop at Safeway in town, you just want pain and discomfort, you're like, bring the plagues, but we're not going to do that, okay? Instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to take two weeks to look at this whole chunk of Scripture as, as a unit and see, okay, what are the main ideas that we can draw out here? Because you'll see in the next several chapters, there's a lot of repetition uh, with the plagues, and so we can say, hey, in a thematic approach, let's look at the big idea and what we learn from the plague. So we won't hit every detail of every plague, but I think we'll walk away with the big picture, okay? We start here in verse 17 with one of these big ideas, and it says in verse 17, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. We're actually going to see how that phrase or similar phrases uh, are repeated throughout the narrative where God says, here's why this is happening. I want to show you, Pharaoh, and I want to show you, people of Egypt, who I am. I want you to know that I am the Lord. I am the one in charge. I am the one true sovereign king of the universe. And so through these plagues, I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to show you my authority. I'm going to show you that I'm in charge. And this actually points back to chapter 5. If you remember how Pharaoh initially responded when Moses went to him and said, hey, God says, let my people go. Do you remember how Pharaoh responded? Chapter 5, verse 2. Hey, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So there's the tension in the narrative. Pharaoh saying, well, who is this Lord, who is this Yahweh, who is this God of the Hebrews that I should listen to him? And it's here we see that Pharaoh actually sounds quite American. Really, think about it. In in our culture today, it's, it's no problem to worship a God. People have no problem that you worship a God and have a God that you believe in and a God that you follow. There's, there's plenty of spiritual options out there that people would, would applaud or would approve of. And people are fine with you talking about a God, even a God that loves them, that's for them, that wants to do good things in their life, as long as you don't talk about a God that's going to infringe upon their decision-making. Right? That's, that's where kind of a line gets crossed from, hey, there's a God out there, to, and hey, This God actually calls you to live a certain way. This God calls you to respond. And so this is what we see with Pharaoh and the ancient Egyptians. There were plenty of spiritual options in the ancient world. The Egyptians had many gods that they worshipped. And so they would probably say, cool, the Hebrews have their God. We have our gods. No big deal. But here's the tension. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now you're crossing a line, Moses, because you're saying that that your God is calling me, Pharaoh, to do something different. So worship whoever you want, Moses and the Hebrews. Just don't tell us that we have to worship him as well. 
And so Pharaoh doesn't listen. He says, who is the Lord? I'm not going to listen to you. You see in verse 17, the Lord responds. Well, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh, I'm going to show you this is who I am. I'm going to show you why you should listen to me. And so, so the plagues that we see unfold are not just some, some cheap magic tricks or entertainment or sport. They're very focused with the purpose of God showing Pharaoh who's really in charge. That God is the one running the universe. And so look at how he begins to do this in verse 17. It says, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, verse 23, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. And so we see plague number one. And it gives us really this pattern of what we see in all the plagues to come. Usually there's this warning, this confrontation where Moses or Aaron go to Pharaoh, let my people go. And there's a warning of what will happen if Pharaoh doesn't respond. Pharaoh has a hard heart. Pharaoh doesn't respond. The plague comes. It brings destruction. With some of the plagues, we'll see the Egyptian priests are able to sort of reproduce part of the plague. We don't know exactly how that happens, but with most of them, they aren't able to. And it's clear that it's the work of God at work. And Pharaoh, at times, sounds like he's going to give in. But then he doesn't, and he hardens his heart, and the process repeats itself. And as I mentioned before, through the plagues, God is showing Pharaoh and all of us who is really in charge, that he's the one true God. Because these plagues, they're not just random events. They're, they're pointed specifically at particular gods and goddesses of the land of Egypt. God wants to show that he is superior to the gods that are worshipped in Egypt. And so, we see in each plague a specific god or sometimes multiple gods that are targeted to be humiliated with the plague. So let's take the first one, for example. The Nile. First plague. The Nile River turns to blood. The Nile was Egypt. The Nile was the center of their civilization. The people depended upon it for their economy, for the growth of their food, for uh, travel and transportation of certain things. It was the source of their water. I mean, it was the focus of life for the people. And three different Egyptian gods were associated with the Nile. There was Osiris, 
There was new, N-U, and the God happy. Not H-A-P-P-Y, but H-A-P-I. The goddess happy was the fertility God that gave life and sustenance to the people. The God that provided food and abundance and was especially connected to the Nile because about once a year the, the river would flood and the region, the soil around it would be very fertile because of that. And so they looked to Happy as this God that could bring them fertility and life and sustenance and joy by providing for them through the Nile. And then, in an instant, in verse 20, Moses and Aaron strike the river and the water turns to blood and the fish die and it smells and people have no water to drink. And so God shows the people. It turns out that Osiris and Nu and they got happy. They're, they're not actually in charge. They actually can't provide you with what you need. Only the Lord can do that. And so the Lord humiliates the gods of the Nile, the gods of Egypt. We see a similar thing in the second plague, in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. And the, the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. So plague two. Frogs. Everywhere. I mean, look at verse 3. Where are the frogs? They're in your bedroom. They're on your bed. They're in your mixing bowls, your kitchen equipment. You open the oven. Bam! There's a frog there. And it's almost comical because frogs, I mean, frogs aren't going to kill you, right? These frogs are not like vicious, attacking frogs, rabid frogs. You know, they're, just, they're frogs, okay? And they're just unsettling. They're unpleasant to look at unpleasant to listen to. I don't know, if you have a pet frog in here, maybe you love frogs, but most people, right, you don't, you don't want a bunch of frogs around. It, it wouldn't exactly threaten you or kill you, but it's just unpleasant and uncomfortable. Anybody here have mice that got into your house during the winter? I'll admit it. We had some mice in our house, and it was horrible. These weren't trained assassin mice. These weren't <laughs> Mice that were trained for combat, that we were worried they were going to kill us in our sleep. But we were just so uncomfortable for weeks, knowing that these little critters were walking around with their little grubby paws, maybe cooking some food. If you've seen Ratatouille, we're like, we don't know what these guys are doing. We can't trust them. So we had to go into war mode and to get them out of the house and plug up holes and set traps. And we were dead set on removing these mice because life, it felt like it was just at a standstill until we could figure this out. And so with the frogs, you know, it wasn't exactly a threat, but it was just so uncomfortable, so humiliating for the people. The great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon explained the significance of frogs in Egypt. He said, frogs were worshipped by that nation as emblems of the deity. 
Images of a certain frog-headed goddess were placed in the catacombs and frogs themselves were preserved with sacred honors. The goddess he speaks of is the goddess Heket, H-E-Q-E-T, a goddess of fertility. A goddess also, interestingly enough, was responsible for keeping the frog population in check. So she wasn't doing her job here, clearly. And the people saw that. So there's this image, again, think about it, that the people would look to as a sign of fertility, of abundance, a sign of deity, a goddess with the head of a frog that they would look to and trust in. And God uses that to show how empty their belief in that God would be. Completely humiliates this so-called goddess, the frog goddess. We could go through chapter 8, chapter 9. Chapter 10, and look at each plague, and we can see how Seb, the god of the earth, is humiliated, and the Egyptian gods of healing, or Amun-Re, or, or Horus, gods associated with the sun and the sky, and see how each plague targets one or more of these gods, and God simply shows them these Egyptian gods are powerless before the Lord. Pharaoh starts to see this. In different ways. He begs for Moses to pray and get these frogs out of his hair, probably literally. And Moses responds in verse 10 of chapter 8. Look at how Moses responds. He says, It will be as you say to, to Pharaoh, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. So, what does Moses say? Hey, okay, Pharaoh, we'll get rid of the frogs. So that you know who's in charge here. So that you may know who the Lord is. We see the same language after the seventh plague, which was hail and thunder. Look at uh, verse 29 of chapter 9. It says, Moses replied, When I've gone out of the city, I'll spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop. There will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Okay, I'll bring a stop to this plague, Pharaoh. Why? So that you may know the earth is the Lord's. See the same thing at the beginning of the eighth plague, the locusts in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, so you see the repetition over and over again. That you may know that I am the Lord. That they may know that I am the Lord. That you may see who I am. God is showing us that he is the, the one true God, the sovereign king of the universe over all the gods of Egypt and even Pharaoh himself because people look to Pharaoh as a god. It was thought that, that Pharaoh had the responsibility, actually, for keeping the natural order running, for keeping a sense of harmony in the natural world. And so we see here that during these weeks and these months, while the plagues are taking place, Egyptians probably would say, okay, Pharaoh's not doing his job because the natural order here, the created world, how things are supposed to run, has been completely upended. It's chaos. I mean, we see... Water turned into blood and frogs and flies and cattle dying and darkness in the land and all kinds of things happening. Our gods are not delivering. Pharaoh's not keeping the natural order. Our gods are not providing for us the way that we thought that they would. 
And so we have to ask, as we do every week when we come to Scripture, okay, what does this mean for us today? Because we're not living in ancient Egypt. As far as I know, none of us are worshiping ancient Egyptian gods. We don't worship happy or look to the Nile as a source of life. We don't worship Hecate or frogs or Horus, the god of the sky. But I don't think that as Americans we're really that different from Egyptians. I mean, sure, we have all the modern advancements in technology. We have smartphones and electricity and Panda Express, you know, all the quintessential luxuries of modern life. But are we really that different from the Egyptians and what they're doing in their hearts? See, we, we worship other gods too, and the Bible calls this idolatry. When we put something else in the place of God, when we put someone else or something in the place of God and we worship it. And really, at the heart of idolatry, there are two questions. And the first question is, who or what should I obey? Who or what should I obey? When I think about, what is the good life? What is right and wrong? How should I live? Whose script should I buy into? What narrative should I believe? Do we believe in the word of the Lord? and obey him, or do we buy into some other narrative about right and wrong and good and bad? So who or what do we obey? And the second question that comes up with idolatry is who or what do we trust? Who or what do we look to for life and joy and fulfillment and identity? I've shared this quote before, but I think it's worth repeating when we talk about idolatry. Pastor Kyle Eidelman, which is a funny name when you think about the subject matter here, Kyle Eidelman challenges us to reconsider how we think about idols. He says this, what if it's not about statues? Again, idolatry. What if it's not about statues? What if the gods of here and now are not cosmic deities with strange names? What if we do our kneeling and our bowing with our imaginations, our checkbooks, our search engines, and our calendars. We don't worship the gods of Egypt, but we have our own lowercase g gods today that we look to. Tim Keller says an idol is anything that is more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, or your identity. Again, an idol is anything that is more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, or your identity. So almost anything can become an idol, and not necessarily all bad things. But some of the idols that we look to today, that we obey and that we give ourselves to today, be as follows. One, we worship the idol of success, achievement. If I can just make something of myself, if I can get that promotion or be well-respected in my field or get good grades or be a better mom or have a nicer house, if people could just look to me as an example of greatness, of a healthy life, of having a bigger following on social media, we say, then, then I'll be happy if I'm successful. 
a counselor named Mary Bell, who, who counsels a lot of high-level executives, said, achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. And achievement is the alcohol of our time. We go to it, we seek to achieve, to perform, to be successful and think that if we can do that, if we can become somebody, then we'll have happiness, meaning in life, we'll have found our identity, we'll find joy. And so we pour ourselves out in pursuit of it. Some of us worship the idol of money. And the funny thing about money is that you don't have to have it to be controlled by it. So even if we don't have money, we think that, well, if I can just get it, then, then I'll be happy, then I'll have fulfillment in life, then my life will have meaning. Think about power. We worship the idol of power. If I can just have control, control of my circumstances, control of other people at work. If people have to submit to me and I have authority over others, I feel good. I feel like I am somebody. Sometimes we look for authority in our homes our spouses or over our kids. We think that that's going to make us feel like somebody. Some of us worship the idol of sex and relationships. We think that it's romantic pursuits that will fulfill us, that perfect someone, spouse, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. We have to have it to be fulfilled in life. We have to have it to find joy. And so we give ourselves fully to that pursuit. Some of us worship the God of entertainment, comfort, in nice restaurants and concerts and exciting things, travel that keep us going. An exciting life will satisfy us. Notice, these aren't necessarily bad things. There's nothing bad about travel and fun and nice restaurants and relationships and money and being successful at things in your life. Those things aren't inherently bad. But idolatry is when even a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. When a good thing, meant to be a gift that we enjoy and appreciate about our lives, becomes something that we have to have, something that defines us, something that we feel incomplete without, something that we look to instead of the Lord to satisfy us. And so, though idolatry will take different forms for different people, at, at the root of it, it's all the same issue. It's, it's a worship problem. We are worshiping and giving ourselves to something other than the Lord. And so, friends, these plagues, as we read about them, they, actually, they might seem harsh. Maybe they're unsettling. Maybe they're disturbing to some of us. And they are harsh in different ways. They are acts of judgment upon the land of Egypt. But we can also look to these plagues and see them as a gift. They are a gift of mercy because they're an opportunity for the people of Egypt and for Pharaoh to see, you know what? The things that we're looking to, to fulfill us and give us life and satisfy us, they're not working. The things that we're looking to can't do what we're looking to them to do. It's an opportunity to turn to the Lord and find in Him what we need. See, idolatry is not just an issue because it robs God of glory. It's an issue because it robs us of joy as well. Again, idolatry is not just an issue because it robs God of glory and we don't give God the praise that he deserves as the king of the universe. That's true, it does that. 
but it also robs us of joy because we're settling for these lesser joys, seeking to be filled in life by all these things that ultimately can't fill our hearts. See, many of us look at our lives and we wonder maybe why we can't be the people that we want to be, can't change the way we hope, hoped we could. We see the same struggles just coming up in our hearts. We see the same lack of compassion or impatience or anger or outbursts show themselves in our relationships with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, in our jobs. We think, why isn't it different yet? Sometimes it catches us by surprise, too. You ever had just a anger or, or, or fear come upon you so suddenly, like something strikes a chord deep within you and instantly you're, you're furious? Or you're, you're fearful, you're stressed out all of a sudden, or you're discouraged and depressed all of a sudden, and you're not, you're not exactly sure why. Sometimes that happens because an idol in our hearts hasn't been dealt with. And one of these idols that we pursue is being threatened. So our status is being threatened, our success is being threatened, our money is being threatened, and it makes us angry, and it makes us fear. See, the only cure for the issue of idolatry in the human heart is worship. It's the only cure, is worship, is to replace these idols, uproot these idols in our lives with the Lord, the only one who can truly sustain us and fill us with joy and give us the life that we are pursuing. It can only be found in Him. This is why every week we, we look to Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We look to God's word and are reminded of the gospel because that's what we need the most. Our hearts are not going to be transformed by some quippy life hacks from scripture. We need the gospel. We need to see Jesus in all his power and all his beauty and let that transform us. Let the gospel transform our hearts so that we worship the one true God. And then we can see the other things in our lives be ordered and prioritized in their right place. That's why we're going to close in just a few minutes by singing the song, Look and See Our God. We've sung it before, but that's the heart of what we're about, right? Look and see our God. Look and see Jesus. We need to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That will change us. That will transform us when we realize who God is his power and his glory, but not just that he's powerful, not just that he's stronger than all the gods of Egypt, not just that he can send these plagues, but this God is good. And he came to save us, and Jesus died for us to offer us forgiveness and reconcile us to a relationship with the God who loves us, both now and forever. So that's really what the plagues are about, showing us that no other God can satisfy us. No other God is worthy of worship. And not only is this God we serve powerful, he is good. And he calls us to trust in him and find life in him. Let's pray. Father, we look to you and we, just, we praise you as the king of the universe. God, you are worthy of, of our worship and we recognize that we will only find true joy and fulfillment in life when we put you 
at the center, when we allow you to fill us and sustain us. And then from that place of life and freedom and joy, we can, can venture out into all of the good and exciting things that you have planned for us to do. So Lord, help us uproot the idols in our hearts. Help us identify the things that we are trusting in that are not you. And Lord, help us instead put our faith and trust in you and find life and joy in you, Jesus. We love you and thank you. Amen.